And on that operating table, my heart stopped twice. So twice I had to be brought back to life. That's again where they just cut me out. And I think both both Colin and um, and Stefan was allowed quite free access within the building. And at the same time, they almost peeked over through this glass window into the theater and they can just see the doctors scooping my inside out of my body, wow. placing it wow. next to me. And both of them just literally turned around and went, he's not making this. Hello, this is Dr. Rowe, and you are listening to The Cicado Show with Dr. Rowe and Harms. Cicado means to seek turning points. And on this show where two completely different generations tackle the most challenging topics that people are facing today, the mission is to provide you with what you need in order to create a turning point in your life now. Above all else, the main reason that we chose to create these shows is because we both have a passion for helping people go through life transformation, for improving their lives, for taking their lives to a completely different level. And it's our hope, our genuine sincere hope, that by the end of each of these episodes, you'll have gained at least one insight which you can take away and apply directly into your life. Practical tools, voices that come from both generations, younger generation with tips and tools, older generation with a sense of wisdom and experience. So you can help unlock your true potential to give you the opportunity to make changes both on a personal, professional, financial and relationship level to give you a chance to impact both your life and the lives of other people around you. So we welcome you. We welcome you to The Cicado Show. Before we jump into the show, let me just tell you a little bit about becoming a Cicado supporter now. If you love what we do on the show, have gained transformational insights and positive outcomes or any small shifts which have allowed you to create turning points in your life, then please head to cicado.com and become a supporter of the show now. By supporting the show, we can continue to expand by getting you better quality production, spending more time deep diving important topics and creating more exclusive supporter perks as well as getting great guests on. And by the way, as a thank you for becoming a supporter and depending on which supporter tier you select at cicado.com, these perks range from my weekly recipe for success emails through to audios and video courses from my 23 steps to success, which includes online modules on how to find your life balance, gaining confidence, improving your time management, making successful career transitions, understanding financial independence, creating a life purpose, understanding and how to manage your money, becoming a money master, understanding negotiation techniques, learning to communicate more effectively and so much more. So don't delay. It takes less than two minutes and you can become a Cicado supporter, helping to expand the show and get special perks as a thank you. Become a supporter now at Cicado.com. Let's get back to the show. Hello, it's Harms here and welcome to another episode of the Cicado show. Today's episode is part two with Jaco Van Gas. And if you tuned in for part one, you'll know that as part of Jaco's story, he had woken up in hospital after being in a firefight in Afghanistan and waking up to realize he had kind of life-changing injuries. And that's exactly where we left off. 
And what we want to do in this episode is find out what happened next. So Ro, over to you to introduce Jacko. Brilliant. Um, first of all, great to see everybody. Thanks for joining us again, as ever. I know there's been people inquiring about what happened to part two. Uh, part two was slightly delayed with a few more weeks of other things going on. And uh, whilst we're recording this, actually, Jacko, congratulations. He's about to get married in a few weeks. Full preparation going on over there. And uh, also, correct me if I'm wrong, Jacko, but you uh, you mentioned about you've now been nominated for an MBE. Is that right? Is that the correct way of wording it? Do you want to just yeah. quickly tell us about that before we carry on? Huge congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So obviously uh, nominated for MBE and being awarded in the New Year's Honours List uh, the 1st of January um, uh, to, to receive an MBE at some point uh, this year. Whenever there's a bit of space and time, I think there's quite a big of, bit of a backlog um, due to COVID with these uh, quite remarkable ceremonies. So, so yes, yeah, so we're, we're awaiting the letter to, for the actual receive of the MBE. But yes, um, you know, hugely honoured to, to have received it. And, and, and yeah, to kind of, for representing Great Britain and, 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 and for, especially within cycling. So, so yeah, very honoured. Yeah, well, huge congratulations. congratulations. But of course, that pales in insignificance next to the wedding, doesn't it? Bearing in mind that your fiance is probably next to you, or she was <laughs> earlier on. So, um, of course it does. <laughs> well, look, you were kind enough to, really go deep dive with us last time. And I think we, we got to a place where there was quite a lot of reflections going on on a personal level. So you've just come out of this unbelievable uh, firefight and you talked about the fact you'd just woken up in hospital and started to realize the, the level of the injuries. Could you just tell us what happened to the, the unit that you were with? Because obviously from what you'd said, they literally, people were just piling in to cover where they could. Some of the guys were coming back across to cover who were somewhere else. What happened to the team? Yeah, correct. So, um, you know, like you say, that night, you know, pretty significant firefight. Um, and the guys did an unbelievable job. So in a very lucky way, in the way I see it, we were very lucky that I was the only significant injured or wound, wounded that night. Um, mm. I was classed as a tier one we again throughout your medical training um, or medical training that we all received on the very basic standard level. If someone gets injured, you can you mark them a T1, a T2, a T3, and that would you know will depend on the level of you know almost um, what what's the right wording the level of attendance they will get. You know, can they look after themselves? That's more of a tier one, and a later on look on and tier two is a bit more severe, and obviously tier three is immediate uh, medical attention and Kazivak and I was a tier one and I was attached to a sniper that night that evening um, and he was the only other person that uh, sustained serious-ish injuries he received some shrapnel wounds to his calves so so again really difficult to walk so he's a tier two so again he can actually do some functions but also need medical attention to actually just get out of there so we were the two mostly severe wounded and myself really the the worst of all of them the rest of the guys were managing to then kind of recover from the blast the kind of the shock from it and then continue their job and to suppress the enemy i think it's only later on and it literally was i've spoken to a few guys where it will be like a day or two later where they would feel a, a sharp scratch sitting down or something rubbing on them and they're like what's that and it will be a tiny tiny piece of shrapnel um either in the leg or in the back or in their arm um, that they didn't even notice was there. And then suddenly um, it's kind of, the body's kind of shifting it out. Um, but myself and, and the sniper partner 
was the only severe ones. And, and again, he stayed actually, I think, within country. They took the shrapnel out. He, gets, he got some stitches and a little bit of rehab. And I think two weeks later, he was back, uh, back on the ground and, and doing his job that was required. Wow. So, so, yeah. So, like, I mean, in, a, in a very lucky sense, it was only me that sustained those horrific yeah. injuries and not, not many other of the team members. And, and that was, if, if I remember rightly, you were escorting these high-value um, assets or whatever you'd like to, I don't know how you describe them, but th- these were prisoners. Did they end up, because that was an un- unexpected firefight, wasn't it? What, what was the end result? Did they get lifted away? Do, do you have to turn back? Yeah. What, what happened? Yeah, so, so, so like you said, high-value targets that we, that we caught and captured. And we still had them. We still had them um, with us. Uh, one of the guys, was he's he so role to to look after them and kind of get them down make sure that they're safe as well and then once the helicopters came to pick us up we managed actually to get them onto the helicopter okay. as well and then escort, escort them off the ground and then they would then be interviewed and and then prosecuted eventually through the taliban sorry, through the taliban through the afghan um yeah. the afghanistan law system and stuff like that um so amazing yeah. so all that went on and you wake up in this pretty clinical environment who was the first person you saw? I remember seeing my mother's face and with great deal of confusion, real big confusion, because my last clear memory was being in Afghanistan. And I remember being in a firefight and there was almost like a, a level of realization of what happened to me. Um, but thinking I'm in Afghanistan, because I know obviously this this theater stay and we've got hospitals and stuff like that as well, you know, hospital tents and stuff like that. So my first thought was that my parents and my sister has flown, you know, been flown out to Afghanistan. And I know that the camps on a regular basis get attacked. And I thought, gosh, this is not what I didn't want that. And it took a great deal of convincing from doctors and my family to say that we're actually in Birmingham. And this is six days later after I've been injured. So, uh, so yeah, so, so it, that took it. They had to actually, they actually had to, wheel me to a window to actually look outside and let my brain actually calculate the fact that I'm back in the UK. I can see streets, I can see cars, I can see the green trees. Like I say, and as long as I was cooped up in that uh, intensive care hospital ward with the curtains You could have been anywhere. I I could have been anywhere, anywhere in the world. And for me, my my brain, my mind, my memory was back in Afghanistan. So until I actually saw the outside, that I could kind of rationalize that I'm back in the UK. And then I had a bit more of a settlement inside of me as well, that I'm safe, and even more important so, my friends and family. And Jacko, how critical had it been? Because obviously we, we, took, we, we went through the attack, you described that, you're waking up. How close, was it a near death? Was it, was it with a, you know, obviously you'd lost, you must've lost a lot of blood as well, I can imagine. Well, yes, I think, uh, so again, speaking to people that were on the ground, so, the incident happened, receiving life-saving treatment on the ground, lifted right. by a helicopter, and I was then flown to a, a specialist um, base, American specialist base. So, I, again, I can't really even disclose the camp's name. Mm. I was flown there because they were the closest to us. And then one of my best friends uh, and soldiers, uh, Stefan, and my boss, my captain that night, a guy called Colin, they stayed with me and the rest of the unit weren't even allowed to get off the, uh, off the back of the helicopter. So two of them were allowed. Um, and that's when I received obviously life changing injuries. 
And on that operating table, my heart stopped twice. So twice I had to be brought back to life. That's again where they just cut me out. And I think both both Colin and um, and Stefan was allowed quite free access within the building. And at the same time, they almost peeked over through this glass window into the theater and they can just see the doctors scooping my inside out of my body, wow. placing it wow. next to me. And both of them just literally turned around and went, he's not making this. I've spoken to Colin many times and he's like, that's the one thing you'll never forget. And he actually had to kind of take a break from it all. And he walked outside of the building, lit up a cigarette and just was puffing on a cigarette and kind of thinking, well, surely he can't survive on this. Surely he can't survive. Um, and one of the nurses actually came out and was having a, a, a cigarette break. And he just went to a, there's no chance he's, he's, what's his survival rate? And she just went as calm as a cucumber, just went, yeah, he'll be all right. He'll, he'll pull through. He's a fighter. We've seen a few of them. Um, he'll be all right. And Colin said, just like, I've just seen this man's guts mm. outside of his body. Mm. How is he going to make that? And they're like, no, no problem. And they've just seen the, the mo I mean, that doesn't even phase them. So I can't even oh imagine God. what horrors they have, not horrors, but, you know, horrificness they yeah. have seen. And, and they have, you know, they've saved my life. But yes, twice I, um, I, my heart stopped. Uh, twice I had to be brought back to life. Um, and I think as well, what Colin said as well, I think I had less or about or le just a little bit less than a pint of blood left in my body. Fuck. So I had, wow. you know, quite a lot of blood put back into me. So, yeah, all very, you know, on the edge. Uh, so, so, yeah. I think, is, you know, often I've like seen there. you speak over the years uh, since I've known you and this stuff doesn't really come out. It's, it's, it's the depth to, to that, to go to that point in your life. What, okay, so... Sorry, my brain is just going 100 miles an hour trying to process this. When you wake up out of that, where, when do you start to start to acknowledge what's happened? Did, is that weeks after? Did it was it an instant acknowledgement, or did you like now I'm just going to get up and carry on? What's going on in your head? Because you've come for as you described to us, you were you know you grew up in South Africa, sporting, athletic, take anything on. You, you know you got to that point doing what you're doing so well. Yeah. So your natural makeup oh. is you'll just do whatever it takes and just get on with life. Pretty much so. But yes, uh, it was it was quite a systematic process as well, and and it took some time. It it was I would take a, a few weeks for me to kind of rationalise what happened because, as you say, it, it's literally. I was in very very physical peak of performance. During my time in Afghanistan, we, you know, I was very fit. I made sure we were in good physical shape. I, um, I looked good. I felt strong. You know, I was in, in really good. And then you get hit by a rocket and you go from, like I said, one day feeling, you know, on top of the world and in the best shape of your life. And six days later, what felt to me like the next morning, because I was in an induced coma. So once being brought out of that, I'm sipping... Um, a protein shake through a straw to help feed my body and to help recover. I had a, a colostomy. I had a catheter. I had people, you know, getting me, helping me to sit up. So totally independent, uh, sorry, totally dependent on mm. people around me, be that nurses, be that family members, uh, be that friends. So my, literally my life shifts from one extreme to the other in a matter of seconds. So even just comprehending with that, 
And then, and like I say, there was like a thing that in my mind, I, I rationalized and I remember the, the loss of the arm. I looked at it and I remember, okay, gosh, that's gone. The biggest shock of them all was actually realizing the extent of all the other injuries that I, that I, uh, that I received that evening. Because then I looked and I, I had bandages all over me. I had a colostomy and I was like, I didn't even know what a colostomy was. I didn't know the function of it. I've never even heard of the word colostomy. Sitting there rationalizing like, right, what is all this? What's going on? I didn't know the injuries I sustained to my left leg um, and how severe that was. Uh, I had a collapsed left lung. Uh, like I say, the arm was almost like, again, I looked at it, it was like, yeah, I remember that. And it was like, let's carry on. But the rest of it was, was very difficult to, mm. to deal with. And then you have all these, uh, again, all the support just pouring in from family and friends. And you wake up, there's someone there, or your, your uh, visiting times, it's always filled with people. And slowly, and like I said, it's almost like I put a, a bit of a brave face in front of them to show them, and especially my parents, mm. and even more so my mother, to show them that I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. But I've not actually dealt with anything in my mind up to this stage. And mm. as normal and as anything, life goes on, you know. And as these people were heading back to their day jobs and the visits started getting less and my parents eventually having to fly back to the UK, I find myself with a lot more time to myself. And that's when the mind started ticking over. And that's right. when I was like, oh my gosh, what has actually happened to me? I have this colostomy bag that I don't know, is this for life? Is this for a couple of months? Is this for weeks? I have a third of muscle and tissue of my leg blown off. And at that stage, it was quite infected as well. So the unknown of whether I'm going to keep my left leg was just right. huge because we were constantly trying to fill this little gap where there was just, you know, all this badness oozing out of it and whether the skin's going to heal because I had skin graft over it and the skin wasn't uh, catching and it wasn't healing and all that kind of stuff. So the potential of actually becoming a uh, above knee amputee was still on the card. It depended mm. on how this leg is going to heal up. And then, yeah, like I say, suddenly I found myself stuck in this bed. Um, with all this what, what, time and all this thoughts running through my head. Talk, talk us through the extremes of your mindset, because I think this is an important frame of reference as we move into the next stage of the journey. And for anyone listening that's going through a difficult time, it's always good to go back. Because often we grumble on a day-to-day basis about shit that's going on, but compared to that, it's fuck all. So what's, what, what's the diametrically opposite conversations that are happening in your head? You know, the worst case, the best case. What, can you remember any of that? Yeah, I remember some of it. And, and like I say, so suddenly I realized the restrictions I was under at that stage. And mm. I couldn't see that how I'm going to get better and how life is going to carry on the way I am. And, you know, so am I always going to be in a wheelchair? Am I always going to be pretty much bad about? I couldn't see the progression that will eventually help uh, mm. c- come on the way. And then, yeah, most 100% those thoughts turned even more sour. And then I started asking questions about, um, you know, why did this happen to me? Why me? Actually, why did I survive? Was I a bad soldier? Did I did something wrong that night? Was I in the wrong place in the wrong time? But was it my fault? There's an element of wrong place, wrong time. Yes, but there's an element of that I place myself there. That, is it all the fault of my own? And can I forgive myself for that? And then starting wondering, actually, well, if life is going to be the way I am now, I am not happy. And yes, you know, suicidal thoughts coming, you know, am I to a a degree better off dead or 
you know, just not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel whatsoever. Um, and were these, were these conversations that were coming up and down? Was it constant flow? Was it just a period? How did that was, show up? Because there may be people listening that recognise yeah. that. We come across people, yeah. even on our, even on the communication events, that have had a tough time through their lives, and they're internally communicating what you're talking about there. And what, what's what yeah. Rose saying, I think, is uh, somebody may listen to this and say, okay, that was happening at a moment in time. You know, you mentioned two weeks. It could have been 30 days, could have been 60 days. But for some people, we've spoken to people uh, 20, 30 years later who still then still haven't. go back to that place and they feel like they're there. They have those thoughts. Yeah. So what was that wow. like for you? Yeah, for me, it was just that period. That, that, and like, you know, and I'm open, obviously, with you guys as we freely talking here. And I then eventually got out of that place. And actually speaking about it now and, and looking back on where I am now, it seems almost impossible that I that I even had those thoughts uh, mm. that I even that I even considered something like that. Mm. But that was me in that moment. That was me having to learn what's going on, um, having right. to deal with that moment. And it's later on that I had this realization that you know what, I actually do only have two choices here. There's an element of acceptance, or there's an element of giving up. And the giving up will be obviously, you know, we're looking we're looking suicidal and not being here. And like you said, a, luckily, I didn't that, even go down that road of what that, how that might even be no, but that You know what? Even you saying that is such a great frame yeah. because I think people overcomplicate situations. The fact that you're looking at it, you go, well, I either have to accept it, what do I do next, or I give up. So that is a powerful tool for anyone listening. Mm. If anyone's sat here listening right now to Jacko and has got a tough thing going on in their lives, it has happened. What The, the fact is it's happened. It's a reality. It's, the question is now, how do you shape yourself to become the next stage in that if you want to stay alive and live purposefully? Would you say having people around you as part of that switching away from giving up towards acceptance? Very I just much want to so. add to that question, Jacko. Did all of this dialogue happen with yourself mm. with no external input? Oh, yeah, good question. Or did you lean on, like Rose said, were there people around you? Did you go seek advice? What was your process to get to this two choices? Yeah, that's a great question. Very, And again, so for me, this was all internal uh, right. and with no external kind of yeah, yeah, right. out of this. No, yeah. come on, don't be silly. I, I was like, like I said, there was this front when I saw someone, I was so happy. Any visitors, anyone, you know, friendly face or whatever it might be. It was like, oh, I'm here, Jacko, oh, smiling and, you know, coping well. But you know, that curtain draws and, you know, nighttime falls, you know, some very dark, very dark mm. demons started coming out. And this was mm. all internal dialogue. Um, and it, for me, I can, I saw the, especially the, the morning when my parents left and especially my mom, I, I saw the worry in her face. I saw the worry in her eyes because I think even for herself, sitting next to my hospital bed was an element of I'm here, I'm looking after you, I will do whatever you can, whatever I can for you. To now mm. get back on a plane from England to South Africa, you remove her and she will be in her house, you know, X amount of thousand miles mm. away from us. Like and then she's like, who's gonna feed him? Who's gonna look after him? Mm. If he's got pain, who's gonna make sure that he gets painkillers and stuff like that. Um and I can see the worry in that. So for me, it was always showing to her that I'm okay. Mm. And just seeing 
that in her face that day when she left, I could not even imagine the heartbreak if I took a decision to not be here anymore. I, I would destroy her life. I would, I would end her life to a degree as well. Because for myself and my sister, you know, that's one of the reasons she's here as well. She lives for us. And mm. if I took that away, I'm, the ripple effect of my, right. I'm trying to, you know, my stupid decision, because it yeah. is a stupid decision. Well, the um, consequences of one decision the like that. Just, yeah. Correct. The consequences, that's actually the correct word that I'm, that I'm looking for. The consequences of, of my decision to do something as very simple as, and stupid as that is so big. And especially, and my mom probably being that very first ripple from mm. that center. Um, mm. And I decided to, like you say, it was just like, you know what? I need to accept what happened to me. And I need to see where life takes me. I need to learn to live with this this new me, the the, the way I've now been shaped and formed, and mm. and some of the challenges I'm going to be facing. And you know what, Road? That night I did that. I accepted and I decided for the second option, the latter, to carry on with life. And I don't think I've ever slept so well in my life. <laughs> I woke <laughs> up with with uh, it, it felt like someone someone took. The, the the world of problems away from me and i and i mm. i had a clearness and i had a, a freshness that morning that i can go okay you know it's going to be tough i'm going to come across a lot of difficult times but um, i think i'm ready to to take this on and and it was like a light switch it literally was a switch in my mind of acceptance and going okay and with that came as well that okay i'm i can't be a soldier anymore i can't be an infantry mm. anymore and I think that was also another big element of of my change and my moving forward. It was moving on because I was there were still days before this where I was hanging on. I was constantly thinking, what can I do in the army? What roles can I play in the army? Can I go right. back to Afghanistan? Is there a prosthetic that I can have that's going to hold a weapon and I can still operate a, a weapon safely and, and accurately? And this was where my mind was at. But my body, obviously, this is my mind. My body's going, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to slow down. You know, we've got mm. bits missing. We need to heal up, you know. So they were two different places. And once that acceptance of actually that the words of career changing injuries was the literal meaning of it, mm. that we need to look somewhere else for something that, you know, I'll be happy with, but not within the military, was also an element of acceptance and and that was like, again, just a big load off me. And then my mind and my body were synced, finally. After weeks, they were synced and they were in the right place. And, and now you're ready to I, heal. And now I'm ready to heal. And it's exactly that. And yeah. I can, I promise you, it's, it's as if in that protein shake, someone poured an extra scoop of <laughs> magic in there. Because suddenly... <laughs> My, my body was healing faster than what it did yeah. over the last two, three, four weeks. You know, I was constantly like fighting infections and the skin didn't want to heal. And suddenly there was bits of me that was healing better, healing, you know, going, the doctor's looking and going, Quicker. oh, that looked horrible last week. That looks amazing this week. And it was, like I say, I was ready to heal. And mm -hmm. my path to recovery just sped up by 100%. Amazing. So, so how, just remind us, how old were you at that point, Jacko? I was 23 years old, yeah. 23. I got, I got hit on my 23rd birthday. birthday. 
That's Correct. right. Oh, I can remember you saying. Mm. Yeah. So when when um, one of the things that we used to run the turning point events, we used to talk about the fact that when something dramatic happens to you, a turning point often creates a new set of beliefs, values, a new sense of purpose, which leads to a new sense of identity. Those four or five key steps. And that happened to you almost in an instant. If you think about the decision you made, a new set of beliefs, fuck, I can do something differently. A new set of values, let me live for something different. A new sense of purpose, not necessarily a purpose in military now, but something else. But also now a new identity. You talked about your new body, new form. I love that word you just used there, that description. Did it feel That's like exactly. that? It's like an instant turning point overnight, almost once a decision had been made. That's exactly it. That's, that's exactly it. It was, and like you say, it was a, it was a turning point. It was a defining moment as well. Um, yeah. And a lot of people think, oh, the turning point was the night I got injured uh, and, and, and sustained injury. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's definitely a turning point. Or it, 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 but, uh, yeah, yeah. That, but for that, me, right. Looking back. You know, I've, I've got actually quite a few, you know, and, and even after injury of, of things I've achieved and, and gone on to do uh, within my life. But for me mentally, that, that evening, that mental switch, that acceptance, that, that conversation I had with me and that, that moment going, option number two, let's go live life and let's see what we can do. That for me is one of my biggest turning points, one of my biggest defining moments within mm -hmm. my life that I made a conscious decision that then led to everything from that very moment onwards to where we are Cause, today. Because a, a fundamental lesson here is that shit happens to us. You, you had a situation that occurred to you, a set of circumstances, but the true internal turning point was the, this when you made decisions yourself. In other words, you couldn't control what happened, but you could control how you then deal with that, albeit yeah, some of the most and you're severe. So right. And shit still happens to me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis. And, and that, I, I really actually want to bring that out and make it very clear to, to the audience and the listeners is that just the fact that um, I had something so horrific happen to me doesn't mean like, oh, he's, you know, he should kind of cleared for the rest of his life um, to a degree. I, I still come over um, very difficult times. I still come over very difficult times where I feel life's just a bit unfair to me life you know why isn't this happening why why am mm. i why have i been in, why am i getting injured why is this property deal not going through why you know there's mm. still very difficult decisions to make but is anything from that moment on as significant as that incident that happened to me or that night i made that decision no oh my God. And if i can get so if i can get down if i can get out of that moment then anything else you know, beyond that is actually quite minor. And if I could have gone through that moment and made such a big decision to carry on with life, then when I'm facing anything difficult from that onwards, is it as significant as that? No. So if I can get through that moment, I can get through any, any other difficult Well, you know, I uh, wanted to answer that question. I know you're on camera. The audience don't know this, but I can, can you see I wrote down pain as a frame of reference? So yes. for me, before we started the interview, I actually – one of the things I wanted to get out of today from you was, does Jacko Van Gas have a frame of reference he goes back to when he's facing difficult challenges? Because I think that's a lesson for people to take away is we've all had something shitty happen and we've come through it. It might not have been as extreme as yours, but exactly. the fact that we've grown, grown through it is a frame of reference. You've kind of taken the question out of my, my mouth by <laughs> stating it. So would you say, because we're talking about you know adventure, we're, we're talking about cycling, Everest, which we'll get to 
did you go back when things and still do when things are tough to remind yourself that it's never going to be as bad as that or you're grateful that you've had this experience but you've grown so you don't have to you can overcome all things it's, pass it, it's both yeah like you say there's, there's an element of both of them there is elements where i think where there's that moment of this is so tough so be that physically and even mentally but mostly on the physical side where i'm like you know what I've actually been in, in, in worse discomfort. I've actually been in worse pain than this. And, and I know I can push through. And then there's an element as well where, again, you can have that internal dialogue with you. That, and, I, I've, I've, and a beautiful thing about is, you know, there's so much, so many podcasts like this one that you can learn and you can listen from and you can mm. grow from. Uh, and again, from previous books that I think, I think I've, I've read a quote somewhere or a stat that, you know, when we're at the point of giving up, when you're doing something very hard, very strenuous, and you're a point like I've reached my limit, you're only 60% there. You still have 40% in the tank, mm-hmm. be that mentally and physically. You know, you, so even just knowing that, you're like, that's a big number. That's a lot more to push. And even just by knowing that, you can actually go, well, I have more. We can yeah. push through this, this, this difficult time or this hard time. So, so yeah. And it, it comes from learning. And again, like I say, resilience is something you, you're not born with. You're, it, it's something you most definitely learn about over the years from going through difficult times, getting through that. And then it's almost like a recipe. You can constantly use the, the base of it, but you can add a little bit more and add a little bit more. And eventually you have the perfect recipe of, of getting through adverse times. So, mm. so yeah, it's definitely something you can learn. It's not a lot of people say, oh, you know, people are born strong-minded or, or hard world or whatever it might be. I disagree. I think it's, you can make, you can learn from that. And that comes from, over, you know, just just during life and how you actually deal and and the tools you use to to um to get through those difficult situations. Mm. So, Jacko, talk to us about the speed. And this is still something just sitting in my mind. How quickly you were able to accept, mm. come through adversity, and then make a shift in your life. The speed there, you know, you're talking about frame of reference of two weeks. Possibly it's a bit longer. But going back to the point where I made, where we've seen people you know, spend decades hanging on to adversity without acceptance. What was it? Did you have an approach? Do you have an approach now? You know, you talk about these building blocks, you know, building upon your resilience. Why was you able to come through adversity within a space of two weeks? That's like incredibly quick versus someone who maybe takes years and years and years. And even six months in somebody's life is a long time. 12 months is a long time. So was there a process you follow now what happened back then it's an open question for you that's a really good question and it's probably something i do need to ponder on a little bit to give the absolutely correct answer but something that really does spring to mind immediately is that and i think even now on a daily basis you know we face change we face adversity in various different levels on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And sometimes we don't even know it because they're so minor. What do I have for breakfast? You know, mm. do I go scramble eggs or do I go with a, with a bagel or something like that? You know, <laughs> constantly making choices or get off, you know, little bits of like that. And especially the army. You know, my, I think the, the one place I learned to deal with change was within the army. And, and again, it's only I look back on it now and I see that's through my training and I see that through my preparation for missions and operations that, you know, you can plan to the best possible way you can, but you can land on target or arrive at a location 
and something's totally changed since the last info update that you had. And you can't abandon the mission just because there's a change within, you know, if there's a door where there shouldn't be a door uh, or there's a doorway, then you have to adapt and change and make a quick decision to go, okay, we'll place two men here and then we carry on with this um, or you enter whatever. But you can't just abandon the whole mission just because there was a slight change than what was briefed to you. And and like I say, I think especially throughout the army, they, they've, learned, they, they've taught us so well to, to deal with change, deal with adversity, deal with like, this is a situation, oh, it's gone wrong. Um, what do you do now? So think outside of the box. And I think that really def- definitely did help with that ability for me to then go, okay, well, this is a significant change, but there is only one outcome. And that outcome is I need to adapt to it and I need to seek what life now looks like. Uh, and especially within a parachute regiment, we're extremely proud of who we are, what we stand for. And we have a, our motto is Utrunit Paratis, and it means ready for anything. And I was actually mm-hmm. saying that phase through my mind a few times. Like it's, it's indoctrinated into us. You know, I, I wear, I've got, a, I've got a tattoo on my, on my right shoulder, you know, with the emblem and saying that. And I'm like, well, how can I bear this, uh, this, this, this cap badge? And I'm not even living to those mottos or those standards that we stand for. And that actually helped me very much to go, you know, yeah, I'm ready for anything. You know, I can take this on because I'm actually, I'm, I'm proud to be a paratrooper and I'm still a paratrooper. I'm going to be a paratrooper in a different way, but I'm ready for anything. And that really did help me uh, make that shift and then move on um, to, you know, the, again, that level of acceptance. I'm going to jump in here because I think that there's always been a big debate over affirmation. Some people argue affirmations work. Other people say that people mechanize affirmations because particularly through the 80s and 90s, there's a big movement towards positive, positive development and personal mindset and affirmations. And I think an affirmation, you have to own it. You own it. I mean, it's there. It's on your shoulder. It's, it's in your mindset. This whole concept of ready for anything just became a way of life for you. And I think that's that's a great lesson. Acceptance, affirmation. Um, and also you talk about dealing with change. So just being prepared to deal with change, three really important things that you're right. It could be breakfast, but it could also be something that's happened at work. You walk in and you find out, I don't know, you've lost a contract at work. So, okay, so you're ready to deal with that. Exactly. Accept it. That's the situation now, my job. Now, what do I do next? As opposed to grumbling and whinging about it and spending the next three hours. What the fuck happened? That doesn't get you or, anywhere. Or, or saying that wasn't the plan. Yeah. Because often, you know, the opposite yeah, of what true. you described is, Somebody has a fixed plan in their mind of how their yeah. life is going to be, how the next year is going to be. And we know that always changes by default. It's nothing goes to plan as you've described. So that's the opposite kind of frame reference, I think, here. Yeah, that's right. I think with younger people as well, I mean, whilst I've got you here, Harms, because I want to talk about this just briefly before we, we move on to the next step of, of, uh, of Jacko's journey is this whole concept of being disciplined is still, I think in the younger generation, it's not quite there, is it? It's like, if it doesn't go quite right, look for another easy option. I don't know if you see that in some of your audiences, Jacko, that you were fortunate at 23 to have had that military discipline. But I think the average 23 year old has a very different mindset to that. I don't know if you want to talk into that space here of you. Uh, over to you, Jacko. Have, have you seen that? I, I, I personally have. So I, I've personally seen kind of... I don't a, want to use the word lazy, but I just think... I think Because our audience is mixed. We have younger, older generation. I think because of the environment we're in, the convenience and the speed in which we can get things, mm. it's always what is the easier option. And also being able to change 
you know, from, oh, I don't like this app. I'm going to use this app instead. Mm. Oh, I can't get my food from this delivery company. <laughs> oh, wait, there's another one. I'm going to switch over. That becomes their frame of reference. Yeah. Whereas when something really happens in life, they're not quite adapted to make that change because that requires a difficult process. Jaco, you spoke us spoke and talked us through the process that went on in that two weeks, that month. Yeah. That does that's not happening in mm. people's minds. So yeah. if they come out of university and don't get the job they want, okay, well now that's it. My yeah, plan's right. over. And then you get it's game over. You get a spike in in uh, mental yeah, you know, a lot of mental issues at the moment for, for younger yeah. people, I think, struggling. This is why I think this story is such a powerful one. Is that there's an underlying message here. It's like just uh, for me, it's like get the fuck up, do something, you know. And, and yeah, Jacko did it whinging. at that age. Jacko did it in the 20, yeah. 20 How old are you now, Jacko? Remind us, 30, 35. 35 now. Gosh, yeah. I forgot yeah. How, how long I've known. Kicking you. on a bit. You, got, you guys are similar age, actually. <laughs> I, I know. I know. This is a perspective <laughs> check for yeah, me as yeah, well. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> Which actually is interesting because now is a great pivot point, I think, to talk about if you embody everything Jacko spoke about and you're ready for anything. What could happen next to you? Yeah, in terms of the achievements, Jacko. Yeah, bearing about. in mind what you went through. So, so, so when the, the compass got reset, obviously, what was the next big north for you then, in terms of like uh, well, following it, the compass? You speak about north, and it, it pointed to the North Pole. To be very honest, uh, directly. Ah, that wasn't so, the uh, by the way. I couldn't <laughs> remember which one was first. If it was Everest or the North Pole. <laughs> uh, well, it pointed to the North Pole, um, and yes. Yeah, so, so through my rehabilitation, I was constantly. I found as well the way I've worked and the way I've always worked uh, in my hand uh, in my head was that I needed something to work towards. I needed. I am one of those individuals like it's it's quite easy to be lazy, but I always have goals and challenges. And if I don't work towards them, then you know I don't have a you know why am I breaking myself? Why am I putting myself through discomfort to 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 achieve something? But it is if I if I have that, and that was very much through my rehabilitation as well. So the challenge was. Let's get out of the bed. I need to get into a wheelchair. And then the wheelchair turned into a, a walking frame and a walking frame with a walking stick. And then obviously all on my own. And then from walking to running again. So I had these very short but very clear kind of yeah. um, achievements that I want to get to and work towards. And then and through that, life just progressed very quickly. So very soon, I was approached to take on this challenge uh, to be part of a team to walk unsupported to the geographical North Pole, something that's never been done before by a group of wounded service men or women. Um, and this was the perfect challenge for me because it was so out there. It's something I've never done before. I have no experience in, in such cold environments, but the challenge was, you know, can I go and do something? And quite a long story short, eventually I went for the, uh, the, the interview phases and I've been told no, because at that stage, in my mind, I was like, I'm on this team and I'm walking to the North Pole. But <laughs> I was not, I was actually still on a walking stick. Uh, I had a colostomy that was still, you know, mm. relatively fresh. My leg was healing up, but, you know, it's still touch and go. And I walked into this, uh, this, this interview room and I can still remember uh, Ed Parker, Simon Daglish, which is the two founders of the charity, and the the, the main guide, Ingo Solheim. Hmm. Their faces just drop because um, that that they've been seeing guys the whole day, and then suddenly I walk in and they're like, "You were basically a walking corpse compared to anyone else we saw that day. You How were. Long is you this looked rough? like you were fresh out of 
your intensive care bed, basically. <laughs> Just give us some, because the listeners are a bit, it's like one of those movies where you it's go, but movie. how far along was this? Yeah. How long since you had the accident? Are we talking about months? So yeah, uh, we probably, year? I would say from, from having the accident, we're talking about three months down the line. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We're talking about three, three to three and a half months down the line. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm going to try to go to North Pole um, and, and actually smash it. And again, in my head, that's where I was heading. Um, and that's what they said as well. They're like, uh, you know, they, they made me do a few kind of, they're like, oh, can you just get down on the ground? So if you've fallen and you have to get back up, you know, how are you going to do that with one arm? Um, they had a doctor as well. And the doctor did a really good consultation on me. And and thank you very much, Jacko. We'll be in touch. And almost you know, that very same day, um, Ed Parker called me back and said, Jacko, first of all, I want to thank you for coming in. But he was like, we've, you were by far the most severely injured guy we've seen that day. And he's just like, your injuries is too fresh. But, you know, the colostomy back, how is that going to work in minus 30 degrees? You know, it's, right. it's, you know what's, the, what's the score of that? Can you, we don't know anything about that. And, and the dangers around, you know, that getting... I don't know, you know, imagine if that fro- freeze and, and, you know, the injuries I can sustain from there further on was just too severe. I was just like, okay, yeah, I understand. And it was a bit of a disappointment to me, but it just, again, it just made me refocus. I'm like, actually, you know what? They have a good point. So maybe let's just dial it down a bit, but I still need a challenge. So I then went into, okay, let's start to running again. Learn to run again. I then went on to do my first ever half marathon. And that was in Kenya, in Lewa. Uh, I then went on to do uh, the New York Marathon. And then we did the uh, a US Marine Corps Marathon. And we thought, oh, we up the stakes and we'll actually do it in full military kit and run through the streets of, of Washington. And I've got to press pause really now. I've got to press pause for it because there are people listening to this that are like thinking, I've been thinking about doing a marathon for the last 10 years <laughs> and I still haven't fucking done a marathon. So just very quickly, do you set just short-term goals? What, just, just give us a couple of insights into, because we need to get to this point, obviously, because of time. So I'm glad we're moving along, but I just want to pick up a few learning lessons. What's going through, what is the new makeup of Jacko Van Gas at this point? Talk to us about, just briefly, what, what, what are two or three core beliefs that I suspect are still in you now that are part of the, the person that we're, we're talking to or interviewing that's carried, you know, what, what's going on? How did you suddenly accelerate to that point? How do you focus? What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about your limitations? Do you even believe you've got limitations? What's going on? Yeah, well, again, yeah, like you say, I, I, I've learned and developed that if I set myself uh, a lot of short-term goals, which eventually lead to the bigger goal. So I do have a bigger goal, which is further down the line. And I promise right. like work backwards from that. Uh, and, and, and again, be that, be that in, in business, be that in property and be that um, in my sporting career. Again, if we look at, I actually had this conversation with my coach a few, just a few days ago where we're like, we're already looking at Paris. You know, Paris is three years down the line. Um, mm. How am I going to win and defend my titles in Paris? Okay, we walk backwards and there's, there's world championships here. There's, and we're looking at changing certain training elements. Okay, yes, I've done really well to now and we've, we've got a base of, of how I can win it, but if you if you don't change, if you stand still, and I, if I just do the same things I do that I've done right. over the last four years, I'm going to be stagnated. I'm going to be 
in one place and the rest of the world is going to move on. So I need to go, okay, I know what works well. We can keep elements, but what can I still build on that? What other elements? And this is what I'm trying to figure out now, and I've got a bit of time. So again, so this year is almost for me. We've got goals, we've got competitions, but I'm also very much experimenting with different training blocks. Do I do more stuff on the road? Do I actually do a little bit less on the road and up my gym capacity? And if you do more of one thing, it has an effect on the other. And it's, it's we're, we're experimenting and that keeps my passion, that keeps me. So I, and then the love for it. So one thing for me is short-term goals towards the long one. Um, and then you've got to love what you're doing. You've got to have a right. passion for it. I don't believe in anything. I, I can't tell you, oh, I want to, you know, I, I want to win the Paralympic Games, but yet I hate riding my bike. And, um, you know, those two doesn't go, they, they, they don't fix right. me. I'm like, well, it's torture then. Because why am I then putting myself through quite a lot of discomfort and, you know, those hard sessions and so much sacrifice, time away from my wife-to-be and, and, and other things that we sacrifice sometimes. You know, we never go on a holiday without a bike. So what she would love us to do, there's probably the honeymoon is probably the only one we're going to do that for. The rest of the time, I have a bike with me. So, uh, so yeah, it's a little bit like that. And then, yes, so, you know, just have a clear goal of, of what you want to achieve in life. There's some good lessons out of that, wow. which I think is coupling the passion with the purpose, daily purpose, almost yeah. like each incremental change. That ties it nicely because, it, and, and what I've taken away from that is often, and I think I see this in younger people, I've felt this myself personally, is you want to get to the big goal right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because you love the process, because you love whatever you're doing, and this applies to individuals as well, you're you're more than happy to, to take that small step, achieve that small goal, start it with a half marath- marathon for yourself, uh, and now Olympic champion. So there's a there's a real process to this. But like you said, if you don't love it, then you're not even going to mm. do the first or second mini goal, if you like. Yeah. There is a value That's actually right. listening to listen to this conversation. There's a value in a set date. Like Paris is a set date. Mm. You talked about these marathons, these half marathons. They're set. Whereas when Correct. somebody's like creating an idea, a new idea, a new business, whatever, or you know, you do property as well. It's like, oh, let's get a deal. But unless you put a stake in the ground and say, I want to get it by this date, often yeah. it's very easy to flex on that aspirational activity, isn't it? Very much. And and we myself and like we and as a as a myself and Catherine as a as a couple as a business partners as well, we very much do that. We we actually tell ourselves we want to buy X amount of houses by the end of this year. Um, mm. And and it puts a bit of a pressure on you because otherwise, if you just say we would love to have two houses, you know, hopefully soon or something like that, you keep you keep pushing it, you keep pushing it back and that and that soon mm. could be two years down the line, it could be five years down the line. But we like mm. our goal is to have X amount of more properties uh, in our portfolio by the end of the year. And how do you do that? So you then go out and go, you know, you do the viewings, you do the groundwork, you do the research, you do everything and all of that. So you put that pressure on you to then do everything that's required for you to do that. So, yeah, I would I would definitely that like that end date, that put a stake mm, in the ground and go, this is what we're working towards. It's, it's, it's very important. So so you're, you're you're going through some marathons now. You're, I guess the idea here is you want to build up the strength to be able to show that you've got the capacity to do, do a longer walk. The north, you know, the North Pole is a heck well, of a... To be, it's not, to, be, to be brutally honest, is I, I've almost parted with the North Pole because um, at that stage, okay. they were in full preparation. There was a team selected for that. Um, okay. And I just thought that opportunity passed. Um, and that's why I then found this new kind of, not love, but interest into cycling, well, trying to get back on a bike, but also very much running. Um, 
I, I kind of then had all these opportunities. And actually, one of the other team members was in the same unit as me. And he came back and he saw me in the gym. And he was actually the person that was interviewed before me nearly a year ago. And he couldn't believe, having seen me walk through the doors, he walks out, I walked in, in my crutch and hopping along. Suddenly I'm in the gym, I've run a number of marathons, I'm pushing big weights, I'm all over the place, I'm jumping and skipping and everything. And he then made me aware that, you know what, Jacko, there's a, if you're still interested in this North Pole walk, two of the team members, we were four, two of them, one actually pulled out voluntarily, he felt that he wasn't actually in a good space to go and do something like that. And another had a very good opportunity, actually still within the army, to actually go out to Afghanistan once more. So he wanted to pursue his career within the military. And it just so happened that it fell over that time that the expedition would take place. So there's two spaces available. Get back in touch with Ed Parker, which I did. I joined him for a uh, uh, one of their training weekends, and I slotted straight back in. I was on very similar fitness levels because of all the marathons and running Brilliant. backpacks mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So we started dragging tires. Um, I was uh, accepted into the team, um, and it was I think it was another six months or so that we trained and prepared, and we spent a lot of time in Norway, and we found ourselves on the Polo Ice Cap uh, in Svalbard, ready to take on this amazing challenge. We had a wonderful patron with us, uh, Prince Harry, who joined us on mm-hmm. the ice, um, yeah. which is a lovely lad. Um, he was just, I was so blown away by just how kind he is, how generous he was, how how down to earth he was. You know, at the end of the day, He's he's human. He's one of us. You know, he's got eyes, he's got ears. He he bleeds blood that's red, you know, not any other color. He's one of us. He's just got this title. And he was so down to earth. And we actually had a really good time on the ice with him. And he sadly had to leave during our our expedition because he his brother got married or was due to get married. And he had to get out of there uh, in terms of the preparation for it. And we faced a lot of challenges. And again, really difficult times on the ice because nothing in the whole world can actually replicate the North Pole. The North Pole right. is so unique because it's frozen sea ice. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. Um, the ice is different because we, change, we train in Norway, which is snow or on frozen lakes. But again, just the extra cold that there is mm. in the North Pole, the ice was stickier. We found ourselves kind of caught out a few times with you know, just how difficult the terrain was. But again, we overcome it as a team. We very, very much relied on each other's strengths and weaknesses during this mm. two-week period because there was definitely things I could do, but the risk of me doing them, uh, a tent blowing away, trying to put a tent up, me trying to put my, you know, even my zip, my own clothing, it's so much easier just to turn to a teammate with two hands and go, mate, can you quickly do my zip up? I'm freezing. And he does it in a couple of seconds. I can do my zip, but I have to take my glove off and I've got one good hand. I'm exposing that hand to the cold, to a zip that's potentially frozen mm. that I can get frostbite on my fingers. So, so again, there's all these things you've got to constantly think about that I've learned. That, and it's during that time. And the biggest thing I took away from the North Pole expedition was that it's okay to ask for help. Because I oh my was, gosh. again, mm. I was... This, I was this proud trooper, you know, we're like, we, can do, we can do everything, this is great. you know, we can do everything I own, yeah. I don't need help, yeah. you know, yeah. we're, the, we're the best soldiers in the world. Mm. And then suddenly I find myself in such an extreme environment mm, where I could mm, do mm, it, mm. but it's going to take me three minutes, I'm probably going to get frostbite on my hand, and then my expedition's over, just because I'm so 
just because I've got this muchiness of being a paratrooper and I can do everything myself. Where I can turn to a mate and go, can you quickly do that? And it's two seconds and I'm cozy and warm and we can continue on. And, you know, I've learned to deal with, and that for me was a really big step as well towards, you know, I, I accepted my injury, you know, probably a year before that. But then I started accepted that there is mm. things I'm going to struggle with. And there's, and again, like I say, it's okay to ask for help. But how like important say, is that? I mean, I wrote down the word weakness because you mentioned about weaknesses, but actually it's just accepting that some things that you're better at than others. And in, when you have an extreme injury, like, for example, with your left arm there, you, there's nothing you can bluff. This is a situation. I cannot do this. Yeah. I, I frigging need help. Whereas I think on a day-to-day basis, people can hide things and and maybe don't admit to those weaknesses. Very it's a powerful much. lesson. Just in, I mean, I've seen you in business and, you know, I've known each other for some years now. Occasionally you ring up because you just need some help and you don't even blink. You just say, hey, Rogue, just got a quick question on this. And I get a yeah. sense that that's just built into your DNA now. Yeah. It very much is. It very much is. Like you say, again, there's an element, there's stuff that I'm good at and there's some I'm, I'm extremely good at. And there's some, there's probably more stuff that I'm really bad at. But that is why we have friends, wives to be, <laughs> and, you know, experts in their field. Um, and like you say, it's the same within business. If you're really bad at accounting and doing your tax uh, records for the year, get someone to do that. Because why waste time on that when you can focus on the stuff that you're good at? to then excel that in that uh, that area. And that was one of the biggest learnings I actually took from, from the North Pole. We were faced with a number of challenges. So we faced temperatures of minus 40. And, you know, again, as a reminder, you know, the, the North Pole is frozen sea ice. And sometimes that it cracks open and you, it exposes the, the you know, the, the bare sea underneath you. And again, with the temperatures, that will freeze over quite quickly, but then it's much thinner than some of the other, you know, thin ice that you can easily fall through. Luckily, we've not experienced that. But, um, and polar bears, we even had to think about polar bears that's within the region. So at night, we had to put polar bear traps out. So when they walk through it, a little flare will go off and wake us up and go, okay, well, the polar bears in the area, be alarmed, you know, stuff like that. Um, but after two weeks of, of, constantly skiing and, and looking after each other and making sure that we're okay and, and sleeping a few hours and, and eating freeze dried food, we made it. You know, we stood on top of the world at ninety degrees north, wow. which was just amazing. Just the most remarkable feeling uh, you know, in, in a long time. You know, and it and it really was that moment I realized I, I had a brief I think I said last time as well, for, we, we spoke about reflectance and looking back mm. on what you achieved. It's very important that. And I did that right there. And it, it brought a tear to my eye because I went from, you know, from going again from a hospital bed, wishing I wasn't here, to standing on the North Pole, having done something that no other wounded soldier has done before mm. um, and inspiring people along the way. If I can do this, I, I'm so excited to see what else I can go off to achieve. And that was wow. quite quite a quite a memorable moment for for me at that at that time. So so yeah, and then yeah, we came back, and the question on everyone's lips was, "What's next?" And it caught us a bit by <laughs> surprise, but um, we came up with Everest. So we've put a, a group of soldiers on top of the world at ninety degrees north. So why don't we go and put them on top of the highest mountain in the world? And mm. the idea to 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 put a, a again a service a wounded service man or woman um, on 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 top of Everest. Uh, became a reality 
and we worked very hard towards that. And out of, I think there was about 80 applicants for this, five of us was chosen. So again, a very long story short, the, the, the charity founders told me from the beginning, because I said, oh, I raised my hand. I was like, I would love to do this. But they're like, Jacko, your story has been told. You know, you've just achieved something remarkable. And we would mm. love to give as many uh, people out mm. there with various different disabilities, cognitive injuries and physical injuries, the best possible opportunity to do something as amazing as you've just done. So we will take you along. I think you're a great mentor. And that's, I kind of took on a bit of a mentor role for the new guys. And out of yeah. the 80 as, you know, the whittle down from 80 to 20, 20 to 10 and stuff like that comes down until the final team got selected. I was like, okay, I'm happy to be part of the process. I actually will be very proud of being part of the process. And then the final mm. team for Everest gets selected and they go off and do that. So in order to do that, uh, we had to see how people cope with high altitude um, because we're all different. We're all made up differently. We're all kind of deal with various, again, scenarios and, you know, heat or climates and, and altitudes very differently. And we need to see how this, there was, we were a group of seven and then that will get selected down to five guys. And so we went to the Himalayas and we went to climb Manislu, which is the eighth highest mountain in the world. Um, and that's 8,100 and something, 126 meters. We did that. And at the end of the day, I was actually one of the first guys up to the summit. I dealt with altitude, which I, again, didn't even know. I, my body feels really well with altitude. I was up some of the first guys up there, seeing some of the other guys come. A few of them actually dropped away and was just like, no, it's too bad. You know, even with oxygen, their body just didn't quite cope. And we came back down. And for me, again, that was it. It's like, that's the end of my journey. The Everest team will now get selected and they will go off. So I carried on and I was actually in um, in Washington due to run another marathon. <laughs> I had this obsession with marathons. Um, and I received a phone call from, from the charity, from Ed Parker. And he's like, Jacko, we had a real good assessment of everyone we want to take. But because your ability to climb and to deal with altitude is so good, the chances of you actually getting to Everest on the top is really well, you and a few others. And we want... We want the success of that. You know, we also we are going to take other guys who will get there, but with a bit of struggle, a bit more than you. But we do still want to succeed in doing that. So you've been selected, and it was amazing. I, I mean, I was a bit blown away. But this amazing opportunity came my way, and we found ourselves, I think, only like four months later, back in beautiful Himalayas, walked to um, Everest Base Camp. We had a big acclimatization phase there, um, and again. There's quite a bit of an amazing uh, analogy there that I'll bring out later. So we did our acclimatization phase and then suddenly the, the, uh, we had a summit window and we did our first climb through, through base camp and up to camp one. And you climb in the middle of the night because that's when the, the, the mountain is at its coolest. So you go through the Kumbu Icefall, which is the very first part. And it's a very, very dangerous part of the mountain of Everest. So we do that in the middle of the night because it's an icefall, so it moves uh, and it flows. So hopefully when the cooler temperatures are there, it kind of freezes over. Freezes, And yeah. it slows it down a little bit, making it slightly more, uh, a little bit more safer to, to go up. But it wasn't to be. So that night we went up and we actually faced uh, myself and, and, and another climber, um, Francis, uh, again, dealing really well. We were always kind of the lead of the pack and we went up and there was a big crack 
and then a massive rumbling and then this avalanche started heading our way and we both ran to kind of a big ice boulder and kind of hide behind that and this this avalanche basically came meters away from us and there's this big dust cloud and we were just like we need to get out of here so we kept climbing up eventually got to camp one which is purely just a medical camp had something to eat something to drink and then carried on to camp two which will be our next camp where we stayed eventually the rest of the uh, the, the other climbers did the rest of the team got to camp two and we're all extremely exhausted but that was a very eye-opening experience for me and that was the mm. first time that night actually was the first time in since my incident since the, the night i got injured all the way up to there and we're, we're talking about a year and eight months you know coming up to two years after the incident uh that i never had flashbacks or in you know uh, mm. or anything to, struggling dealing with what happened to me but that night, and it's only, again, later on, I had to make the connection. And that night, I had very vivid dreams of being in Afghanistan, getting hit, getting injured, and I was screaming, and I woke up the next morning really distorted. And it's later on I make the connection, because, again, it was this, this big crack of the avalanche. It was all at night, so you can't see much further than what your head torch is showing you. Mm. So mm. there was it was the darkness. It was the the sound, the the big crack, and the right uh, and the, the 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 rush of the adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. So that must have been a connection for my brain to go. Oh, yeah. this happened. emotional flashback. Yeah. Emotional flashback. And like you say, that was the first time I really had to deal with a few flashbacks again. But luckily, I had amazing teammates around me, and I started talking to them about it. And and being able to share that experience and that emotions with them was someone with people that understood me and mm. know where I came from was really helpful. Uh, mm. And I managed to deal with that actually quite quick again as well. I felt at ease and, and I, I, I don't think I've had much recall, you know, flashbacks again since then. But um, from the beginning, there was something about Everest that just wasn't right. You know, we saw really warm temperatures, you know, warmer than normal. There was times mm. in Everest Base Camp I was walking around in shorts and a T-shirt or, you know, shorts and a, and a light jacket. You know, mm. it's unheard of. We should all be in down jackets and beanies. And, and and with this kind of warmer temperatures, there's a lot of movement in the mountain because obviously it's warmer. So very much a lot more avalanches. So there was constantly mm. avalanches spilling from various parts of the mountain, making it very difficult. And we actually did a few attempts to then go from Camp 2 to Camp 3. And again, due to weather conditions, we couldn't get to camp three, turn around, and we stayed at camp two. Eventually, a decision was made to go from camp two back to base camp. Um, actually rest up. It's a lot more comfortable there. To then actually wait for a second window, window to then try again. And it's once we were back at uh, Everest Base Camp that our expedition leader, Russell Bryce, who's a very, very experienced mountaineer, a New Zealander, he called us all into the big dome tent and just said, listen, guys, something's not right. The Sherpas isn't happy. And again, you know, the Sherpas, they're Buddhist, you know, they, they believe in the mountains as, you know, they, mm. if they're gods, you know, that she's a queen to them and she's angry for some reason. And, you know, if the, if the Sherpas aren't happy or, you know, comfortable climbing Everest, you know, there's no bigger sign in the world no. that can tell you something isn't right. And, you know, fair off to, to, to Ross, he made that very difficult decision. He's like, I'm stopping the expedition. You know, we're not going anywhere. We're not going further from here. We're actually going down. Expedition cancelled. 
and that was a big shock. You know, that was really, really a big shock. We were on this high coming back from 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 the North Pole, and like I say, we we climbed other mountains and we kind of did really well on them. And Everest was just like another little blip in the road. And suddenly we're not going to be able to do that. And we now have to face and tell the people that we failed. And and that was very difficult. That was very hard for us to deal with. Very difficult. And myself and actually two other climbers started talking to some of the other expedition managers and, and outfits that's there. And we were like, oh, how much would you charge if we if we come with you? You know, you know, how much is the oxygen and, and a bit of food and, and, and a Sherpa to take us up? And I was literally going to go, oh, I'll, I'll just take some of my savings and, and, and transfer you some money and stuff like that. Because my passion was so great just to get up. And it, it was actually, it was the wrong thing to do. I was very lucky. I made a really good friend with a guy called Harry, who was one of the guides. And he called us. I think he got wind of what we were trying to do, sneaky beaky behind their back. And he called us and he's like, listen, guys, how many times do you think I, I, you know, I've obviously made it up to Everest, but how many times do you think it took me to get there? And we were like, well, from the conversation, clearly not the first time. It's like, yeah, clearly not the first time, but how many? And I'm like, well, probably the second time, maybe the third time. He's like, no. It took me seven attempts, seven attempts to eventually get to the top of Everest. And he's one of the most experienced climbers I know. But he's like, every time something was wrong or something came up or situations changed, but we didn't force it. And it's when you force those situations that something bad can actually happen. He's like, you've got one of the best guides uh, you know, uh, you, you're with one of the best outfits in the world. And Russell Bryce is saying it's too dangerous to go up. If he says that, it's too dangerous. I promise you. He's not here to take your money and and you not having success. Listen to us. And you know what? It's I'm glad he told me that and he talked me out of it because two days later, we were back in, his, uh, in uh, Kathmandu in a very lovely uh, Hyatt hotel, um, very luxury we were sipping cocktails and suddenly we can hear all these helicopters scrambling from the airport and news came through that a big avalanche um, happened early in the morning and 11 climbers died. 11 climbers wow. lost their lives. And oh suddenly that realization just sunk in going, that could have been us. You know, we could have been that stupid by not listening to someone with all this experience mm. and that could have been us. And what sadly, year was that, Jacko? That was 2012. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. I, I remember there was, yeah. And, you know, sadly, Ross had to be proven right by someone, you know, 11 climbers losing their lives. Yeah. And it's yeah. during that time that I actually sat down and, and I was having this conversation with a friend in the Hyatt uh, on the Wi-Fi with, over WhatsApp with a friend. And it's like, I'm so disappointed. You know, these guys died, but I still wanted to go up to the, to the, you know, to the summit and stuff. And he sent me a beautiful quote through saying, you know, success is not final. Failure isn't final, but it's the courage to continue that counts. And I read it over and over and over again, and I, I couldn't really understand what he meant to it. And suddenly, after a little while, it kind of clicked. And it was similar to that North Pole moment where I realized that, you know what? Just a little bit more than a year ago, I was in my hospital bed wondering what my life would be, not even knowing whether I'd be able to walk again. I've just walked to the North Pole and I've just attempted Everest. The pure fact that we attempted it, that in itself is mission success. 
that in itself is something absolutely unbelievable. So the fact that we didn't reach a summit, but the fact that we even tried, you know, something so extraordinary, that's amazing, actually. Sorry to jump in. I just want to catch this because I think there's a big lesson here about ego as well, isn't there? When sometimes you're faced with a situation and that ego wants to drive through and in any situation, I mean, we're talking about life threatening here, but often it's in business or it's in choices on a personal level that, that lesson I take from this listening to you is that sometimes you have to be appreciative of the fact that there are signs around us. I got asked a question years ago, what's the biggest mistake I've ever made, you know, in terms of building our portfolio or building business. And that was chasing money. I said, it's always been chasing money when an opportunity is there and signs don't look right. If the deal looks really good and, and everything else around you is, is telling you no walk away, that's where for me, I've had the biggest mistakes. I've kept going and I've ignored the signs, even from people that may be a bit wiser than me at the time. Yeah. So the fact that you reflect on that in that way is a, is a great lesson for our listeners as well. I think there's a hidden secret message in these two scenarios Jacko has lived through. One was the, the North Pole and then the second is Mount Everest. In that, in both times, you faced a level of rejection where, sorry, Jacko, you're not in the team, mm. but because of work you was doing in the background, that opportunity was still open to you. So often people get rejected and they think the opportunity's closed, mm. shut down. That's the end of that. Whereas, And that work was actually staying in line with the purpose. Like, okay, I can't do this, but I can go running. I can do this. I can mm. st- stay disciplined. So it's like not losing the passion and creating the momentum around. Exactly. And that's why you got the invitation back. So you got to experience these two amazing, phenomenal things, which most people won't get to experience in their lives. And we'll even go and over 8,000 meters for most people. Yeah. <laughs> but that lesson that you've extracted from this story, that's like a, a lifelong lesson, which people have to learn the hard way. Whereas you learned it through this, this experience and you're still here uh, to tell the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like I said, and then, um, as I mentioned earlier, again, you, you have a little bit of time of reflectance and looking back on it. And, and then I realized like, you know, that this is what life is pretty much like climbing Everest sometimes mm. you know we all need we all have and we have probably several Everest so whether that's in business and whether it's in a personal life and whether that's on a personal scale or a family um we all have and need an Everest in our lives and um what is the top you want to achieve and you know you might never quite achieve and I've actually had this conversation with someone before and he said in business like but why achieve if I have an Everest in, Ever- uh, in business and I achieve the mm. top then what does that mean where do you go next? Um, where do you go next? And yeah. and it actually made me think. But um, you know, that that's a, that's a really good question, and I I should ponder over that a little bit more. But the, the, I think there comes a point where you will probably reach something because whether is that retirement? Is that fulfillment? Is mm-hmm. that okay? Is that the peak of that business? Let's start right. a new business or Shift you know, something purpose. like that. Yeah, that's it. Um, but what I've learned of this is that acclimatization phase. So you know, we all start at the bottom. It's a big big mountain mm. we're going to have to climb and you mm. can't just start from the bottom Great. and walk all the way to the top it doesn't Great work message. like that you right. have to acclimatize and the acclimatization phase works that you start at Everest Base Camp and you climb to Camp 1 and I found that climb and I remembered it like yesterday I, that was the single hardest day I have faced in my life physically like physically trying to get to Camp 1 and I got to Camp 1 exhausted frozen to the core thinking if i've only done this tiny section of the mountain 
how will I ever get to the summit of Everest? And I couldn't, I, I almost couldn't foresee it. I was talking myself out of it already. And then you spend a few hours there, your body gets exposed to the high altitude and you go from camp one and you go back down to base camp mm. and you're back in a low altitude. So suddenly your body goes, whoa, if we're going to go back there, we need to change something. So your body creates red blood cells, which helps carry oxygen. So the second time we went from base camp to camp one, I found it a great deal easier, mm. much easier than the first time. And suddenly I arrived at base camp, sorry, suddenly I arrived at camp one and I was like, I still got energy. That wasn't as hard as, you know, that wasn't as bad as the first time. Yes. Okay. I can get to camp two. And guess what? All that struggle started again. I got to camp two, you know, and I'm just like exhausted. Uh, my legs were burning. I was thinking, you know what? Uh, this is almost too much for me. And you go from camp two back to camp one and your body readapts and you create, you, you know, that, that blood gets thicker and thicker from all the red blood cells. And you go back to camp two and you're like, ah, oh, that wasn't that hard. And you follow this whole process a number of times until you get to the summit of Everest. Um, and that's, you know, isn't that beautiful? Great metaphor. And, you know, we do that the same in life. You know, we, we have to work towards something and we're going to struggle and it's going to be very difficult times, but it's what we learn. It's what step do we take back to then take two steps forward um, mm. and then be able to keep going forward and then to, to learn. And, and yeah, so, so I, again, I've learned a lot from Everest coming back from that. Um, that. That really helped me along in life in various different ways. And was that, when you came off there, was there an immediate sh thinking, right, I'm going to shift my focus to something else? Did, did the cycling fall in your path or was it just picking that back up again and saying, right, well, how can I take that to another level? No. So again, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've always had a love for cycling, and, but no ambitions whatsoever to, to become a professional cyclist. It was not until, uh, well, I returned to, to the UK that it was actually quite timely. It was the, the Olympic and Paralympic Games hosted in London. Um, and I was living in central London at the time. I was uh, in the phase of, of, uh, of leaving the army, which I found very difficult. Um, mm. Didn't know what to go, what to do, you know, what job I'm going to do, which direction I'm going to go, what opportunities open for me. And anyway, I went and viewed a few of the events and I was so inspired. I sat in that stadium and I, I saw these athletes, these in this physical peak of performance and just their professionalism and how the crowds were drawn to them and how they cheered them on and just the atmosphere blew me away. And that day, something, a little seed was planted in my chest and I was like, you know what? I was so jealous. I started going, I want to be on that field. I don't want to be in the stands. I want to be that athlete getting mm. cheered on. And that's where my dream started of becoming, becoming a, a, a cyclist, a Paralympic cyclist. And, and in 2013, I got uh, selected uh, onto a, a British development team. And through the development team, I went on to the academy team and very soon represented Great Britain on international levels. And again, this was a very up and down path. I, again, I, I, I was a soldier. Uh, I didn't... Uh, dabbled my hand into adventure for a couple of years. Um, mm. And now I'm trying to learn to become a professional cyclist. And 
again, you have to learn. You, there were so many mistakes I was making. I was overtraining. I was, you know, I took my diet way too serious. I, I lost so much weight, but I had not enough energy to actually feel myself on the bike because I was right. thinking, oh, I need to be so skinny. I need to be so light. You know, being light is everything. I made so many mistakes and I lost races because I was bad tactically by making decisions during a race. And you've got to keep doing this stuff to learn and learn and learn and learn, learn to eventually one day it comes right and you're like, oh, I've just won a race. How did, how did I do that? Oh, okay, this works. How can I become better and better and better? Um, so my aim was to partake in, in the Paralympic Games in Rio in 2016. And I worked extremely hard. I left no stone unturned. I left London. I moved away from London. I moved into the Midlands. And then I moved from the Midlands up to Manchester to, to be closer to British cycling um, and with my coach and everything. And yeah, at the end of the day, um, I, I wasn't selected. I didn't get selected uh, to be on that final team to, to go and represent Great Britain at the Paralympic Games. And, and it, oh my it gosh, was a those huge happened again. shock. It was a yeah. huge shock for me because I was on the standard and I knew I was on the level to win a medal. And that was hmm. almost a requirement to, be, to, to go. But what we haven't done was it was bad management from the team because there's, there's quite a big process each nation has to go through to qualify spaces towards each game. And we only qualified five spaces when there was 14 available. So, and we, on the British team, there was 12 male cyclists, all at the level to go and win a medal. So out of 12 candidates, all being able to win a medal, only five of them can go. So, and I was not one of them. So yeah, this, this is a very tough, this, this is a very hard thing, you know, for me to deal with. Um, but again, I was like, I think it was more this, this, the disappointment and, and the way they break it to you. You know, you get an email going, you, you've not been selected. Thank you for, <laughs> oh and you're like, gosh. it's so impersonal. You're, you're, you're just, you just realize that you're, you're part, you're such a tiny little cog in such a huge machine at the end of the day. And I, I then went away and I actually went on a, a cycling trip uh, with a few friends. And it's during that time, I, again, had the headspace to think about it and rationalize stuff. And I, I looked back on everything I, and it was, it was a sacrifice. I, I lived my life by one question. And that one question was, what's going to make me fast on the bike? So mm. let's say I get invited to a friend's birthday party. And you know, it's going to be a late night. It's going to be drink. And we, you, you, you're going to eat whatever you want and, you know, not very healthy. Or you don't go to the birthday party. You have an early night's rest. You have pretty, you know, very healthy food the night before. You wake up the next morning, you're rested, you're fueled, train. and you can actually train really well. And that kind of, that keeps going. So which one is going to make me fast on a bike? And it's option number two. It's don't go to the birthday party. And that goes for everything in life, literally from even, even work, like even do I take this opportunity to go and speak to someone or do I train? Because it's travel involved, you know, probably a day of training, potential of getting sick, you know, this is even before COVID, this is even before, you know, do I catch a flu on a train or something like that? And you always choose the option that's going to make you faster. And usually that was the latter. And that was stay at home, train, you know, isolate yourself from the rest of the world. And you start, you don't get invites to friends' birthday parties anymore or weddings yeah. because they know you're not going to come. You, you create that scenario. And anyway, so 
I decided to actually leave that environment. I, I, I left British Cycling, which was actually quite a shock to them because I was still on a, on, on a positive trajectory to go to Tokyo. And that's what they said. Oh, you're going to go to Tokyo, blah, blah, blah. I was like, it's too far away. And what I've just done, I, I need a bit of a break. And how and long then, had this been going on? So it's, it's just two or three years to get to that point where they said, right, you've not been selected? Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, yeah, so 2013 and then up until literally it's two months before the actual games before you know right. whether you go or not right so they wow. keep you on that they keep you on that line that tight line all the time mm. um and like i say two months before the games whether you go or not it's really soon it, it's really late they leave it really late to tell everyone and every sport's different some sports they've got a team almost like i would say six months out which are like yeah you're going or not but Cycling is quite a different beast, and it's just the way they work. And um, so, so yeah. So, and Jacko, just to remind us along that way, you'd been you'd actually be competing, hadn't you? Along the way, so you've yes, been going so out on a comp- on, along that line. I've been competing domestically, uh, internationally. I went to world championships as well. Yeah. I um, I've won a few medals there, so bronzes or silvers and stuff like that. But the goal is always Rio. The, the goal is always mm. go and win a medal. And for me at that stage, it was just win a medal. And yeah, so and like I say, knowing, trusting in your heart, I knew, I knew in my heart, if I get the opportunity, if you put me on a plane, I am going to bring you, British Cycling and, and, and Great Britain, I will bring back a medal. I knew, I just need that opportunity. And sadly, I was not given it. And like I say, I, it gave, I, I didn't have, went through a phase where I just like to, I had to kind of consider that sacrifices, there was not, I had no balance in my life. Mm. Cycling was everything. Um, everything else was well done. So be that family members, be that, you know, uh, relationships, be that, uh, you know, friends, everything sacrificed just for cycling. And I had, I didn't have a balance and I realized that I need to kind of rebalance my life and, and get a bit more enjoyment into it. Cause I actually started resenting the sport. I actually mm. started hating it because what was very difficult to do is to take something that you've got a hobby, you know, a hobby or a passion and a love for, to turn that into a profession mm. and managing that right and still have that love and passion. And that's yeah. very difficult to do. And I found that very, like I said, I actually then went the other way and I started hating cycling for a sport that I love so much and that's given me so much as well. I hated being on a bike. I hated looking at my computer. Everything was monitored. Your power, your heart rate, your speed. You know, it was, I rode, I've ridden my bike thousands of kilometers and I always had to, there's always a, a purpose and it was always like, do this effort. X amount of hours, you know, my training plan was my Bible, basically. Every morning, that's the first thing I open up. I wake up in the morning and I go, what I got to do today? On my phone, on an app, and then your coach will go, right, today, four hours and between these four hours do xyz at the stages so i couldn't even just get on my bike and ride it there was like set ways how to ride it and i had enough of that i decided to remove myself from that scenario and um i'd taken on a number of new challenges myself and seven other wounded guys we did the race across america we were a team of eight and we cycled from east to west all across america in six days which was unbelievable. I did uh, what's called the Cape Epic. It's a race in South Africa, a mountain bike race. And myself and another French, Stu Croxford, who's a baloney amputee, 
we became the first disabled team because you have to ride this race as a t- two team members. And we became the first team to ever complete this eight day mountain bike race, which is one of the hardest mountain bike races in the world over eight days. And I started doing all these little things. And I, that love and that passion for cycling came back because this time I was riding my bike for myself. I was riding mm. my bike because I wanted to ride it. And funny enough, what came with that was actually really good performances because I still raced. I still loved racing my bike. So I would enter races and I would win them. And then British Cycling went, oh, because you won that race, you automatically qualified yourself to represent us at the World Championships. Do you want to go and do that? And I went, yeah, actually, you know, I would. So for a, over that period of time for the race, I would be on the, the British, back to the British Cycling, you know, just like wear the skin suit and they look after me for that week. And then, again, I would get a good result. I would win a silver or a bronze or whatever it might be. And um, I come back and then I wasn't under the, the restriction anymore. And my life continued and I did what I wanted and I raced when I wanted. And I followed this kind of cycle for probably about two and a half years where I'll do my own thing. And then every time for the world championships, I qualify and I'll go. And then in 2000 and well, 2020 in January, um, exactly the same pattern happened, got selected to go to the world championships. And this time I didn't want just one uh, a, a, a mere silver or a little bronze i actually won three gold medals i won three world championship titles which is just unbelievable and then with these this new status of a world champion a triple world champion British cycling went listen your chances of going to tokyo is very very good do you want to come back on a team and for the last four months building up to tokyo and i had a really good think about it and i had a really good discussion with them saying you know what I have a system in place that works really well for me. And I know you as a entity or as a corporation, you know, there's boxes I need to tick for you. So let's work out together how we can both be very happy. And they were very open for that. And we struck a really, really good balance where we were both very happy. And yeah, so I, I, I found myself back on a British team in the final preparation for, for Tokyo. Which was I'm just really looking well. down at my notes and the first thing that jumped out was ready for anything. It goes yes. back to that ready for anything, doesn't it? Yeah, Isn't very it? much so. Full circle, full circle. Full, full circle, you know, ready for anything. But as we all know, then, uh, then COVID, you know, and the world went into lockdown. And the the one thing I was constantly hanging on for, you know, I'll be very, very honest, the first part of lockdown I've enjoyed, and it was amazing as a cyclist because we had really good weather <laughs> and there was no cars on the road. We did. So as a, as a professional cyclist, I was still allowed. To, um, to go and train. And, you know, it was lovely riding down the high street with on the opposite side of, this, of the street with no car. <laughs> and um, I can actually keep my head down and be in a really aerodynamic position and not looking out for cars riding into me. And anyway, so there was constantly this like, is the game going to go ahead? Is it not? Is it not? Is it yes? Um, and then eventually the bad news broke that the postponement was going to happen. And again, it was purely just a phone call between me and my coach saying, okay, the goals for that was supposed to be two months away, we now have 18 months. How do we actually make the best of Mm. this time that we have? And we just reset, you know, okay. So again, so we just went the new day, the new time, literally down to the minute when I'm going to ride my first race and work backwards from that. And we looked into various areas, which 
again, because I was this independent rider and not on the team, I was only, there was a number of things that I was just going to have to kind of almost blag. And there's areas we could have looked in that will massively support me or and give me a, an advantage. But we didn't have enough time to make those changes leading up mm. into Tokyo. But suddenly now we do. And then we looked into all these areas where I can actually improve in, and we worked hard towards that. And before we knew it, 18 months actually flew past pretty quickly. And we find ourselves on a plane to Tokyo. And ironically enough, from eight years before, sitting in the stands, being blown away by the crowds and mm. these athletes and being in a crowd and the atmosphere, I'm actually, eventually, I'm flying towards my Paralympic Games but we're going to have empty stands and no, <laughs> <laughs> no family, no supporters, empty stands. And I'm like, it, it, it's only my luck. I mean, it's not my luck we have, but eventually I make it. And then I can't even have my, my beautiful wife and my mother and my sister or, and anyone there to enjoy in these, hopefully these really good moments that I'm going to experience you know, the opportunity came and it was still unbelievable. And yes, I, I came away a, a double Paralympic gold medalist, a bronze medal winner and three-time world record holder. So I blew Phenomenal. myself away. So, so yeah, I, I went for one medal and I came back again with, with, with three of them. So I like that number three. Seems like it's a you good do. number. <laughs> and Jack, on that note, I mean, it, it's, it's such an accolade as well, but what, Having, I remember I was in touch with you and you're over there. Once you've done the first race and you've got a medal, what, what's going on in your head to reset for the next one? Because you're still on a high there. It's very easy. to t You cannot take your foot off the pedal, literally, can you? Yeah, uh, you're so right. So obviously there was this really high, this really big buildup. And, and I was so, it, it ran a little bit in my favor as well. The one event, the one race that I wanted to win was my first race as well, which was brilliant. So I tapered really well. Right. So I prepared for it. So we got that out of the way. And like you say, I was just on this absolute high. And, and just for our listeners, race. tell them what that race was so they know exactly in context. Yeah, so my race, oh, the, the one I was, was the three kilometer individual pursuit. So it's myself, you know, three kilometers as, as quick as you can. But it's, it's a very tricky race because it's one of those, it's short enough to go, mm. you know, very fast. But if you go too hard in the start, you're going to pay for it in the end and your time's going to be really rubbish. And then also if you, if you do kind of take, you know, take it easier to the end, the, the beginning to have a bit more power at the end, it's, you know, you could have left it, you could have left too much in the tank and then you're like, mm. oh, you haven't, it's one of those races. You, you've got to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's like muscle memory and you just got to, you've got to find a, a rhythm. You've got to find a balance and you know, you know, this specific time lapse that are right for each lap. So there's 12 laps. And I worked mm. out that this is the time I want to keep roughly for each lap. It's going to give me the time that I wanted. And that's exactly what happened. And I timed it to perfection. So I won this race that I built up and, and wanted to make my own for so long. And smashing the world record. The, the, old, world, the old world record was three minutes, uh, 26 seconds, something. And I broke it. I wrote three minutes, uh, 17 seconds. So nearly nine seconds off, off the world record, um, which is amazing. So, but then you're on this high and it's exactly that. And my program was very packed because the next day I had a race and the day after that. 
And I was just lapping all this up, enjoying the, the, the moment, enjoying the experience. And I remember, and, and, and I did not, once that medal was on me, I did not take it off once. And, and I wore it <laughs> in the taxi all the way to the hotel. And it's not until I got back to my hotel room that I was like, I, I took it off. And I stared at it for about a minute. And I was just like, I did it. I did it. You know, this is what we're here for. And I laid it softly down on my bed. And we get this little cute little teddy base as well with the color of uh, the mascot that you get from the Paralympic Games. It's a teddy bear. And then with the color that you win as well. And I laid the mascot next to it. And I was just like, right, job done. But I have a job tomorrow. And I literally put that medal down. And that was the end of it. So mentally, I was like, that's the end of that day. I actually got back into cycling kit. And I went to our balcony and I got back onto my turbo trainer to cool my legs down. And I did, I was, Catherine was calling me. I was like, hi darling, how are you? She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm on my bike. She's like, you've just raced. You, you've just, you've just rode a world record and you're back on your bike. I'm like, yes, but I've got a job to do tomorrow because I'm actually racing tomorrow again. So, and I just had to switch and go, right. And everything started like cool my legs down, stretch, food, massage, sleep wake up the next morning and do it all again. And then the next day was the kilo. So I broke a world record on it, but that, that event is factored. So these guys that rode slower, but they're in different, different categories than me. So they get a little bit of a time bonus. Mm. So with the time bonus, I then, I broke a world record, but I only won the bronze medal. It's a bit difficult to understand, mm. but um, that's how parasitizing mm-hmm. works. So again, very much all this hype of emotion, you know, just went through almost exactly everything the next day. And then again, I got to my hotel room. It's like I laid it next to, laid a bronze medal next to my gold medal. <laughs> and I got into my shorts. I went to the balcony. My bike was waiting for me. And that whole process again. And then up until the third event to then go and partake in the team sprint event. Mm. And this and this was actually much, much more difficult because yeah. for both the previous two events, it's individual events. It's my right. performance. If I felt bad, if I made a mistake, whatever it might mm. be, it was on me. And it was my result that will have the effect on that. Now, you're part of two, you know, there's two other team members with you. There's three of you in a team event. So if I cock up in any way or form here, or I have very sore legs or bad legs, mm. or whatever it might be, whatever fault there is, the, the effect is having an effect on a wider public on, on two other people and their results at the games, you know, so there's a lot more pressure there. Um, and I actually did, I actually did cock up. This is a, an event you have to do, write a qualifier and then the fastest three, sorry, fastest four teams ride for the medal. So obviously right. someone will be a loser without a medal, but the fastest two teams ride for gold and silver. And then the other two teams ride for only bronze. Um, mm-hmm. And then, we rode the fastest time at that time and it was only China. And even though I messed up, I had a really, really late start because actually in training, I was, I was trying to have a very good start, but a few times I had a false start. So I actually pulled away before some of the other riders. And in my, in my head, I said to myself, this is not the time to have a false start. And actually I went the opposite. I actually had such a late start. The other two riders almost went off and I was still standing still or getting held mm. by the official 
and then I pulled away. And then there was a really huge gap between myself and the first rider. Um, so this event, there's three of us. We all start at the same time. You fall behind each other. And the first rider uh, does one lap. They then pull up. Then I'm the second rider. So I sit behind them. Then I'm at the front. And then I lead out the rider behind me. I pull up. And then he does the last lap. So three laps in total at the fastest time. And at that moment in time, we rode the fastest time. Then China went up and obliterated the world record and rode the fastest time. So we were by far second favorites for this event. Um, and I knew, and I came off so angry from that because I knew I, did, I made a mistake and I knew the margins are so small. And even Jody, and this is where, again, people, Jody is a veteran um, within the parasport. He's been, uh, he's been to, I think, nearly seven games. Actually, he's in different sports as well. He, he used to be a, a swimmer and he transferred to cycling. And he came up to me and said, Jacko, don't worry about it. He's like, it's a small mistake. We can rectify this. We have a second chance. He's like, we can beat them. We can beat them. And I'm like, Jody, are you sure? They just broke the world record. He's like, we can, if, if we come together, we can beat them. I was like, okay. So we got the video and we analyzed what each of us done wrong and done right. Mm -hmm. And all of us made actually, you're looking back on it and I thought I made the biggest mistake, but you look back on it and you say, actually, Kadina made a, a small mistake there, um, but right. otherwise she was flawless. I made a huge mistake here, but I actually recovered well and did this. Jody did a small mistake here. Uh, and anyway, so we're like, okay, those are the mistakes. How do we rectify them? So we had a plan in our, in our head. So the final came. With both both teams lined up on the track, Clacker goes. And just before we went, I just went, you know what, Jacko? Just do the basics right. Just mm. Like I said, before I was overthinking, I was like, don't go too fast, but don't be too slow. Do, do this. And Great I was lesson. in a new position. And I just said, yeah. you know what? Do the basics right. Go back right. to the basics. Exactly. And that beep went and the gun goes and we're off. And it was This just comes back to muscle... Can I just press pause? This also comes back to muscle memory, doesn't it? Uh, my experience with muscle memory is that it gets tricked if you overthink, if you start to bring in the cognitive process of thinking about what you're doing. Because the muscle memory doesn't, it's fuck that. I'm just going to do what I've been trained to do over and over again. So you can hijack it by overthinking. That is exactly, exactly what happened in the first round. I overthought it. I, I totally overwrite the whole muscle memory because I was overthinking everything and I was thinking I was gripping my handlebars more than ever. I was yeah, 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 yeah. and I was thinking I'm going to put out more power than I've ever done before. And by trying to do that, something that I, that I don't usually do, yeah. I then mocked it up. I, it, it didn't work. And then I sat on that second race and I was just like, right, just do the basic, just do what you've done mm -hmm. in training over and over and over again. And guess what? Gun went, I was on time, I was on Kadena's wheel, and we rode the, the best. It, it's one, of, I actually get goosebumps thinking about it now, literally. Like, we spoke about if this team comes together, we have three phenomenal athletes. And for the whole build up to the Tokyo Games, there's always something wrong with one of us. You know, we're, we're three different athletes from different backgrounds, from different, you know, training schedules and everything. So either I was always, you know, I was a bit tired on the day we trained and we had a bad lap or Kadina had a, a niggle with an injury or, you know, what a, Jody had a big ride yesterday. So again, his legs were a bit sick. It never came good. But we all knew in our mind that the one day this team comes together, it's, we are unbeatable. And at that moment in time, 
all universes aligned and all stars Amazing. in the right place. And everything just happened magically together. Kadina wrote the best lap I've ever seen her write. I wrote the best lap I could potentially write. And Jody just went like a rocket out of, you know, like a bullet out of a gun once I pulled up. And I was looking up. We were actually down by 3.3 of a second. We were down from the Chinese. And I was looking, looking up, and I'm looking. And the next thing, a green light just appeared above our names and the number one, and then WC, and the world record, WR, sorry, and WR came around. So we did not just beat the Chinese, we won a gold medal, and we just beat their world record that they've put about five minutes before. And like I say, all, <laughs> everything just came together. And I have never experienced such joy in a very, mm. very long time. Seeing mm. that, you know, like I say, especially for free individuals coming together from mm. so many, like I say, we write different disciplines. We have different training uh, regimes. We, we have different interests, but for that one, for that, what was it? You know, 47 seconds, we just came together and we set the world on fire. And that was, that medal is still one of my favorite medals to win because, like I say, there was much more interest than rather than just me. There was just two you, other individuals yeah. on top of that. And I just knew how much it meant yeah. to them as well. So, so yeah. And that was medal number three and world record number three. So, yeah, absolutely Amazing. phenomenal. Well, I mean, all I can say is congratulations because I think the discipline that you put to get out there and all the challenges you've had to face back here as well. Um, I have to say as well, just on a personal level, I think, I know she might be in the background, she might not be hearing this, but I think your beautiful fiance, she's been such a great support over the years that I've known you training for this. I actually think without that support, there's a lot of this probably couldn't have happened. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's my gut feeling knowing the two of you. 100%. There's, there's no chance that I would have achieved any of those, those, those even just getting to Tokyo, it would not have been possible, yet alone mm. winning medals and breaking world records with, without her, um, her support uh, constantly. You know, and again, there's days where my training was so full on where there's mornings where I could barely wake up and there's mornings where I don't even want to set, you know, get out of bed. And she's there for me and she's supporting me. And um, I, I need to reply to one email and that one email seemed like, one of the biggest challenges of my life just to go and type yeah. an email that's really <laughs> necessary to go out and she would be there and she's like i'll type it for you you tell me i'll yeah. be do that get on your bike or here's recovery or mm -hmm. I, she she was that rock that pillar when i needed her the most and like you say it mm. was you were without her support and and again like i say it comes with sacrifice because there's a lot of things we couldn't do uh, again, mm, friends, weddings, uh, once again, we had to make difficult decisions to not do and not go somewhere or, or whatever it might be. And and again, the amount of time I spend away from her training, um, you know, it's a lot. And we are, I'm so happy. I'm so glad that we are actually one of those couples. We thrive together. We can spend every second of the day in each other's companies. And, and we're happy about that. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so it was actually hard not having her there, but knowing her support was there. Um, and like I say, that whole support structure that she gave me and um, getting there was just, it was just phenomenal. And yeah, like you say, it's, it's one of those people I couldn't have done it without. Mm. I think the big message that's come through all of this is the teamwork as well. Yeah. Every, every, every part of your journey, I know we're wrapping up now, but every part of your journey has been this kind of 
the right people around you at the right always, time and being, and being prepared to reach out to them when you need them. And you're right. So in just, just touching base on that as well, in terms of what you say, the right people around you. So what I've learned about that first phase of, of towards, you know, towards uh, Rio was the fact that, you know, again, I was learning. I, was, I, I had to learn and I relied on British Cycling to be that team. And don't get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. They, they definitely played a role and a positive role. But then was, there was probably certain individuals that wasn't in the right role or wasn't the right person for me in that role. Obviously, that's their role. That's what they uh, get paid to do. But did I have that connection with them? Did, was there that, that rapport between them to actually, for me to get the best out of them and for them to get the best out of me? No, there wasn't. And that's the one thing I picked up. So once I then became an independent rider for the, the whole four years building up to, to Tokyo, I did exactly that. I then went out, you know what? I need to find people that believe in me that is the right person and be that, you know, be that your, my gym instructor, be that my, uh, my coach, you know, be that even the masseuse, you know, again, you need to have the right person to understand what have you done today? What, what training are you doing tomorrow? So what state do I, you know, your muscles need mm. to be in? Are you going too deep or are you doing too little, whatever it might be. Mm. And then it's in through that as well. I found a mind coach, which was just for me, the next level up. Once I started, I wanted to say play around with it, which is the wrong phrase. Is once I introduced the ability to have a stronger mind, you know, I can work and get as fit as I possibly can and get my body as strong as I can, but my mind was something I've never trained. And that was something that was lacking in the first mm. phase, you know, build up to, to, to Tokyo, sorry, to Rio. And then for Tokyo, I had something else to train and that was my mind. And I found that mind coaching was so good so good because then everything else fell in place and and again i i saw things in a different light so building that team that you speak around uh, up around me was so individual but it was so crucial and it, it's with all of them that i had in place and that even comes down to you know the sponsors that i had you know the the mm. ambassador roles that i had those were companies that you know believed in me they had a trust in me to actually help me through this phase and this journey to go and represent them, you know, at, in, in Tokyo. So, so yeah, it was so important to build that, that team around you. Well, inspirational journey. And thank you for representing us the way you have done. I know you're going to continue on. I mean, what, what's the next, so Paris is the next focus. Yeah. Defending Paris is a long-term focus. And, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. And then it's just the, the, again, the, the whole selection phase and the whole point scoring phase um, and the whole, uh yeah like a race face building up to that but like you say what i am really excited about because i think this is probably one of the bigger challenges i think it sounds weird but actually sneakily try you know climbing that ladder and building up to be one of the best in the world is easier than actually now being the best in the world Mm, and and staying there and and maintaining Mm. that because now i i always had that someone to work you know that guy i want to beat him and he's the standard yeah. okay i've surpassed that who's the next guy who's the next guy mm. now i'm the guy that's got everything everyone else wants so i'm the standard so can i <laughs> so and that's why i'm so passionate about you can't stand still so i've set the bar but it's my responsibility now to raise it mm. even higher than what i've done because yeah. if i stand still someone else is going to go higher than me and faster than me and then yeah so 
The challenge is retain those titles, and and that's that's a bigger challenge that I think that mm. I face in the world. So we we'll give it one more go, look, and then we'll go from there. I look forward to to, to that. That'll be another podcast. Incredible, well. <laughs> incredible. Well, any final words? And I'll sign well, us I, off. I mean, I that's... think I was just going to ask Jacko: Is there any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with people that are maybe going through life and have got things they're aiming for, facing adversities? Any last words of wisdom from you? Yeah, like I, said, I think last time we we ended on on, on reflection, but I think coming from that as well is again it's sense of enjoyment sense of purpose mm. like you need to enjoy what you're doing you need to have a passion for what you're into and maybe you're not in something that you don't enjoy that much but work towards whatever that might be mm. but yeah it's life is so short life is so short and again i i i realized that when i was 23 years old and my life flashed before my eyes that i came to this realization that you know what we 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 chase so much it's it's installed in us that you need to build a career and you know there's this the systematic process we have to follow you you go to school you you get a job and you buy a house and you buy a car and you know you put your kids through you know you still got to do that but there's an you can you can do it in a much different way rather than you know the, the way we and i think especially you two you guys will understand that more than than, than most people um, in, in what you you do on a daily basis and, and the, the life and, and the way you've set up and created stuff to, to help support your family. But like I said, to be much more involved in it. Um, I would love to do that. I would love to be, once we have kids, much, you know, be that dad that's there, be that dad that can support and their children in, in, in the play or on the sporting field or on a weekend or holidays and stuff like that. And yeah, You've got to enjoy that element of, of what you're doing. You, there, there needs to be an element of enjoyment and, and love and passion for what you do in life. So, so definitely, I think I'll end it on that note. That's a great message. And I have to say, being a dad, definitely you'll need to be ready for anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> well, look, um, say thanks to Catherine for us. Have an amazing wedding. I'm going to sign off now. I'll, I'll leave Harms to do his, his usual rap on everything. Thank you so much, Jacko. Amazing. I've just got one final thing to say you know these these two episodes have been a phenomenal opportunity for me personally so thank you jacko and the phrase that comes to mind is you know be so incredibly good they just can't ignore you mm. you know that's it's been ringing through my ears this whole, this whole last hour and 54 minutes mm. uh, which is incredible so outside that you can find all the show notes at cicardo.com that's Jacko, Roe, and myself signing off. And Jacko has a website if they want to go find out more about him. Yes. Does public speaking if anyone wants to bring him in and do inspirational speaking. And those links uh, we will put on the show notes. If you're listening to this and you want to bring Jacko into your environment, allow him to share this message further, inspire more people, that's where you'll find it, cicado.com. So on that note, that's Jacko, Roe, and myself signing off. We shall see you on the next episode. Hello, it's Dr. Rowe here. Harms and I would like to both personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Cicado Show. And if you've gained just one insight, something positive that you're able to use on a personal, on a professional level to help your life and maybe other people's lives, then please complete an important action for us which takes less than just two minutes. Please become a supporter of the podcast by going to cicado.com and as a thank you, you'll get access to exclusive supporter perks. And don't forget to simply subscribe to the show, share this product with loved ones, and we would love if you would take a moment to give us a review and let us know just how amazing this episode was. Thanks again for listening. 
This is Dr. Rowan Harms signing out. We'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.